Welcome to the first of a series of podcasts focused on defending professional indemnity claims against insurance brokers and associated risk management uh, issues. I'm Marcus Campbell and I lead the insurance brokers ENO service line at DAC Beechcroft. I'm joined by my partner Sarah Crowther who specialises in defending claims against insurance brokers. We're delighted to welcome our guest Stephen Mooney of ID Risk to talk about the role of expert uh, witnesses in such cases. Good morning and welcome Stephen. Um, thank you very much for joining us and perhaps by way of introduction you might just tell us a little bit about um, your broking experience and how you came to act as an independent expert in these sort of cases. Certainly, thank you Marcus and thank you for inviting me to participate. Um, I've been insurance broking uh, for now 40 years and um, I was doing commercial insurance broking up to about uh, full time up to about 2006. I helped run uh, parts of Marsh and parts of Alexander Forbes, uh, which is now Lockton. In 2006, I moved over to the consulting side, um, but I specialize in helping clients assess their broker's performance. So I am actually still involved very much in the broking world. And I say to my clients that if I was a tree and you cut me down, all the middle rings are pure insurance broking, but the outside rings are consulting and insurance broking expert. During the consulting work I did, um, a number of clients said to me, actually, you seem to know the broking world very well. Um, Would you consider yourself an expert? And of course, modestly, I'd say, well, all right, I have a lot of experience, but I don't know about an expert. But my partner actually said, well, perhaps you should consider looking into that, which I did. I then joined the Academy of Experts, did a number of training courses, and gradually have built up uh, a number of connections in the legal world and my work is about 50% defendant and about 50% claimant. Thanks, Stephen. And before we get into sort of detailed questions on, on your role as an expert, Sarah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts perhaps from a, a legal perspective as, as to the role of expert witnesses in, in the broker cases we deal with. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. I mean, I think really the issue um, is going to come down to whether the evidence from an expert, so in this case, a broking expert, is going to assist the court or not. So a court is not going to find expert evidence very useful if the judge has the relevant expertise. So that's why we don't see them in solicitor's negligence cases, for example, unless there's a really niche area of law that needs to be considered. And equally, a court's not going to be helped very much if the alleged error that was made was just so obvious that an expert view is not necessary. So it's a finely balanced decision between giving the court all the assistance that they need. Um, You don't want to anger the court by having time and cost wasted on unnecessary expert evidence. And of course, when you're, you're representing a broker, when you are a claimant even, you don't want to be spending costs that are not going to assist drive your case forward and also assist the court in making its determination at the right moment. So essentially, I think whether whether there's a breaking expert or not is going to be fact specific to the particular case. So in the 2015 case of Involunt and April Grange, in that case, the court commented that the expert breaking evidence had at added very little benefit and that it should not be an automatic decision to call breaking evidence in every case. But in contrast, in 2018, we had Avondale and AJG, in which the fact that the claimant didn't call expert evidence on the broking that was done there um, played a significant part in the judge's decision to dismiss the case. So the thought in that case being that expert evidence will be required in 
all but exceptional cases when there is an allegation of professional negligence by a broker. So there's no real clear yes or no, should we use an expert? And it's going to be on a case by case basis. And as is often the way with with cases we deal with, it's not necessarily a straightforward decision. Yes, thank you. And Stephen, the suggestion that in some cases the duties are so clear cut, the court doesn't need to hear from an expert. I'd be interested in your your thoughts on that and and, and where you found the courts have really needed your your input as an expert. Thank you, Marcus. Well, I think you have to remember that insurance broking, although to the outside it might look like a science, in fact, it's an art more than a science. And some people would say it's a bit of a dark art. The area that the court tends to want to know most uh, in most detail is what are the uh, practices, the market practices of a broker? Because remember, the test that the court is applying is what would a reasonably competent broker have done, not what would the perfect broker have done or what would a complete Muppet have done. It's what would a reasonably competent broker do. And that's quite subjective, depending on the facts. Uh, In some cases, it might be necessary for a broker to go to 10 markets and do detailed technical analysis. In others, it might be to go to one, one insurer and just do a simple broking exercise. And in each case, there's an element of subjectivity. And that's where I think the expertise uh, that I can offer is helpful for the court to understand. Yes. And um, you mentioned, Stephen, you act for equally for um, claimants and defendants, whereas Sarah and I are very much on the defendant side. But how, how do you find um, the sort of acting on, on, on different sides on, on, on different days of the week? Well, it shouldn't really make any difference, Marcus, because in reality, I'm actually reporting to the court, even though I'm engaged by either defence or the claimant solicitor. The facts of the case are similar uh, for each side, and I should be giving independent advice as to what I think uh, has is the standard of a reasonably competent broker. Now, sometimes the solicitors will ask me slightly different questions, which will then draw out a slightly different answer. So you might see a slight emphasis on perhaps where the broker may have failed uh, in the claimant's report, whereas in the defendant's report, because of the nature of the questions that have been asked by the defendant's solicitor, it might be, well, they did a reasonable job on this up to the standard of a reasonable contract broker RCB. So that's where I see the main difference is in the sort of emphasis of the actions of the broker in light of which side. But ultimately, I have to be completely independent. And if I'm found not to be, the judge can sanction me and the liabilities of an expert have changed significantly over the last five to 10 years um, following a number of cases. That's really interesting because as Marcus said, we work exclusively on defence matters. So it's it's really um, really great to get the, the other side of things and, and hear how that emphasis can 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 change according to, to the report that you're producing so I mean what what I'm really interested to understand and it's something we have very little visibility over as as lawyers is how do you go about approaching the joint meeting of experts which is where you try and narrow the issues do, do you see that as an opportunity to stand your ground or do you approach that as a sort of welcome chance to have your views challenged 
Well, a little bit of both, actually. As you know, the meet, joint meeting is a, a sort of privileged meeting that is only between the two experts. Normally, there's an agenda produced for the meeting, and it's normally the claimant's expert. And I say claimant's expert in inverted commas because we're both reporting to the court, actually, even though we're engaged by different sides. Provided that agenda is set out in a clear way, we will have already narrowed down the number of issues that we feel uh, need to be addressed. Um, and we go through each report typically and highlight the areas. We're cognizant also that we have to produce a joint statement after the meeting, uh, which will then highlight to the judge the areas which we agreed on and then the areas we've disagreed on. If we feel strongly uh, that our point is correct and is the right advice to give to the judge, then we will dig in, the expert will dig in. It doesn't matter, though, if you dig in. All you have to say is the experts could not agree on this point. At the end of the day, that's really partly why the court is there and the judge, uh, so that they can make that decision. It's an easy trap for the expert to fall into to try and get total agreement on all issues. We're not there to run the trial. We're there to give assistance to the court on matters of expert broken. So, Stephen, I, I guess the, the joint expert meeting would often be the last um, sort of formal uh, involvement before going to trial. Um, and how, how do you go about preparing to give evidence uh, at trial? Uh, well, actually, Marcus, you're right in most cases, but on occasionally, and particularly with the cases that are going to go to trial, there can often be a supplementary report produced by each expert. And this can come about where as a result of the joint meeting, the joint statement, an expert wishes to either emphasize or even change their point. It does happen occasionally during the joint meeting that the expert, one expert says, okay, in the light of this discussion, I, I would like to change my view slightly or my opinion slightly in this area. So, and that supplementary report can be very useful because it can help clear up any issues that might have been ongoing in the earlier CPR 35 report, which is the main report that goes uh, on exchange earlier on in the process. Beforehand also, uh, I go into court, I will reread my report in some detail and refresh myself because something that a lot of people may not appreciate is that we could be looking at two or three years gap between when the original report was produced and when you finally get into court, and that might be a, a longer period than some, but it, occasionally it can happen. Also, um, there was a very useful course I attended in the Academy of Experts, where you actually go into a mock courtroom. This was before I first went into court. And they actually have a barrister there who, who challenges you and talks about how you present yourself and the language you use and so on. But it can be adversarial and it can be a little bit nerve wracking when you're going in there. But provided you have been true to your opinion and you stick with that and don't wander off piste, uh, which is where most experts get into trouble uh, in court, you should be fine. So just picking up on your point about um, it being nerve wracking, I mean, many, many years ago when I was a very young lawyer, um, I, I had to give evidence and I found cross-examination absolutely terrifying and in fact I've never forgiven the barrister who cross-examined me how do you find the cross-examination part do you is that the bit you look forward to least or do you relish the the prospect of yeah of I, I don't I don't uh, no I don't I'm not in complete fear of anything like that 
at the end of the day, I am supposed to be, and I believe I am, the expert in this particular matter. Now, barristers are real wordsmiths. And in fact, the first time I went into court, the barrister who was uh, on the other side was Daniel Shapiro. Daniel Shapiro was actually responsible for getting rid of expert witness immunity. So you can imagine there was slight apprehension there. And typically, the barrister will try and unsettle you by picking out something and challenging you so that you're then a bit discombobulated when you try and give the rest of the evidence. But I'd been briefed beforehand that this might happen. And uh, the best advice I ever got was from an experienced expert said, there's no time pressure on you, Stephen. If you want to pause and think about your answer, pause and think about it before you give it. And that was great advice. It does mean you're a little bit slow in giving the evidence, but it also means your heart's not racing and you're not fumbling and stumbling as you talk. And I think that's a really good bit of advice, yeah. isn't it? Because quite often it's the way you present yourself. Absolutely right. Even if you could be making a perfect point, yeah. but if you're all sort of sweaty and nervous, it's... The other thing I did, a very simple compelling. thing, the advice the, other, the old expert gave me as well, I said, Stephen, before you give evidence, if the, there's a break in the court, and if you can, go and sit in the, in the witness chair and look around and get the geography right in the courtroom so that you're not completely phased by where everybody's sitting. Because obviously the judge is sitting up higher and you're craning your neck slightly so if you're close up and there's files all around you, you feel like you're hemmed in and so on. So okay. dealing with those sort of visceral aspects uh, and being prepared actually gets rid of some of the stress. But ultimately, the judge wants to hear what you're, you've got to say and provided you're on solid ground in terms of what you're saying, and you're reasonable in what you're doing, you should be fine. That's really good advice. I wish I'd had that advice before I had to give evidence, that's for sure. And you, you mentioned there about the, the, the whole purpose is, is talking to the judge and to helping the court. Of all the issues that you address as an expert, are there any themes around which are the most useful for the court to hear about? It, it must be this point I mentioned earlier where they want to know what the market practice is. The ICOBs uh, on the FCA handbook are relatively clear. Obviously, there's some interpretation, but not much. They've been around for a long time. So the rules are, are relatively well known, but it's how the brokers interpret those rules and practice those and what would a reasonably competent broker do, for example, in terms of providing a statement of demands and needs, or what would a reasonably competent broker do in terms of getting to understand how competent the client is in terms of understanding commercial insurance, which is mainly the area that I deal with. And it's things like that, that the judge is trying to get a sense for, uh, rather than, you know, did they break rule 617B or whatever. And Stephen, you mentioned earlier um, in opening about the, the test of, of a reasonably competent broker. It's not, perfection isn't required all of the time. But one of the um, difficulties we find in dealing with these cases and perhaps all, all professional indemnity cases is, is how to keep out the benefit of hindsight creeping in. And, and we've been giving a lot of thought to the cases we're starting to see arising uh, out of COVID-19 against insurance brokers. Uh, you know, it's going to take uh, quite a lot of discipline to uh, keep hindsight uh, at bay. I don't know if you've had any experience of that or, or thoughts on, on that observation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is one of the several pitfalls that an expert can fall into. 
uh, and it constantly rings in my mind. This other elder, retired expert would keep saying to me, because he acted as a mentor for me for my first sort of five or 10 cases. He said, Stephen, it's what happened at the time. We have to keep that in mind. Forget what is, is known now. What would a reasonably competent broker have done at that time? And, that, and you can easily trip up. You can think, oh, well, they should have gone to so-and-so market. But actually, when you look and see about that insurer, that market, it didn't exist at that time, or they wouldn't have written, them up, written the risk that, that they're now prepared to write and so on. So there are a lot of pitfalls there, and you almost need a, a little sticker on your laptop saying, remember, it's what happened at the time. That's the key thing. That's a really good point, isn't it? And it, that piece around what the market was like at the time is often really important in defending was from our perspective for defending these cases and Marcus have spent Marcus and I spent a lot of time thinking about um, what the hard market might do to brokers ENO claims so do you have any thoughts on how ENO claims might develop over the next few years as a result of the hard market Well, clearly, in a hard market, insurers tend to be fairly um, strict in terms of their interpretation of claim settlements. So there's going to be a lot more disappointed uh, clients uh, when they get less than they expected or indeed even get a claim turned down. And as we know, as soon as there's a problem on a claim, the the clients tend to turn towards their broker and see if there's been any fault there. The issue then, of course, is what was available. Back to this point, what was available at the time? And in a hard market, clearly, there's far less available uh, and the brokers can not unreasonably say, well, actually, that element of risk could not have been placed. The market had gone to pieces. It hasn't really existed for a long time. Up till about 18 months, two years ago, the market had been continually soft. So the hard market will definitely, I think, increase the number of claims that are turned down and, as a consequence, the number of clients who turn on their brokers. The key thing then will be can the broker produce a good record of what they did at the time of the renewal, which markets they went to, what the risk the broker does? And Stephen, starting to think more about perhaps risk management, but um, looking at the sort of typical mistakes you, you see brokers making um, when you're asked to, to, to give your views as an expert, perhaps you could pick a couple of these and, and, and um, how also add, you know, how in your experience from your time as a broker, these can best be avoided. Yes, uh, happy to. Um, the I would break them into perhaps three main areas uh, that I see. The first one is the relationship that the broker has with the client. Now, historically, the broker has been a little bit of a master-servant, really, has been a bit of a master-servant relationship in that the client is the master, obviously, and the broker is the servant. This um, created the position where the, the broker was a little bit apprehensive about asking some of the key questions and certainly the key questions that now form part of a statement of fact. The result of this was that if they had to ask a question, particularly during the sales process, was could you give me some information around your financial history? Have you ever had a CCJ or involuntary um, administration or anything like that? They were absolutely terrified of asking that question because they were worried the client would say, how dare you, impertinent question. I'll find another broker to do my business if you're going to pry into my financial history like this. Now, that's, in my view, a reflection of hangover of the master-servant relationship. 
and it's completely wrong. The bro in my view, the broker needs to be a professional advisor. They don't have to be abrupt or rude. They can even ask, uh, say to the client, I have to ask you this question because, and explain why that question needs to be asked. But the one thing they should not do is not ask the question because it's a very, very common uh, source of claim that the, against the broker where they haven't asked these material fact questions. And as a result, on investigation of the claim, the claim is turned down and the broker is then responsible. This also comes into the relationship element where the broker hasn't really assessed the ability of the client to understand what they're talking about. Now, there is a, a clue in the ICOPS uh, which talks about presenting information in an understandable format. But of course, in order for the client to understand what you've sent them, you need to know whether or not that client can understand it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong, in my view, with asking a client, have you ever dealt with commercial insurance before? Do you understand the terms and terminology? If not, I'm here to explain them to you. Now, that simple question uh, to any prospective client or an existing client would go some way to resolving uh, many of the claims that we see come through. So the relationship thing would be the first area that I would say is a very common uh, problem. The second area then I would say is technical issues. And the two most common technical issues are not explaining average to the client and why they need to make sure their sums insured are up to scratch. And a really common one is inadequate indemnity limit on business interruption policies. And I'd almost say don't take 12 months on any business, always go at least 24 months because the number of times I've seen claims reduced because of uh, inadequate indemnity period it's probably 50% of all the claims that come across my desk. Not explaining average is a similar point, but different because, of course, it leaks into so many other parts of the policies and the arrangement of the covers. And it sort of goes to another point that you, many brokers don't feel comfortable talking about technical issues with their client. They're worried they might bore the client or they're worried, in fact, their technical knowledge is not good enough. And therefore, if the client comes back and says, well, what exactly do you mean by average? How exactly does it work? They think they might stumble and fall in turn to try to give an explanation. So the technical aspects, I think, uh, can form, are very common and form a part of what I see as a problem. Uh, and also at the old chestnut, I'm afraid to say, is just make notes, take a note, make a note. Some of the notes that I've seen come from renewal meetings are just dreadful. There, uh, some sort of renewal note or report with little scribbles on the corner of the page with little figures and a little maybe yes question mark written beside something and all it's just nonsense you've got no chance of being able to defend the case when it's such poor record keeping and i do recall that when i first started with cedric back in the city in the in the late 80s with as an account handler they would actually make you go and do a minute and note taking course where you had to think about the language that you used, you had to think about the objective terminology, you had to imagine that the person on the other side of the table was reading this note, did they understand, was it very clear as to what was actually being spoken about? And whilst I hated doing the course, it was very tedious, it has actually stood me in good stead over the years. Uh, and as you will know, uh, as lawyers, if there isn't something written down, it's virtually impossible to prove that it ever took place. So if it if I was to say to a, a broker, please try and get these things right, because um, that will get rid of 
probably fifth, no, probably more, 70% of all the likely claims that I think would be very helpful to them. Yes, I'm sure Sarah and I would um, completely agree with your last point about, about record keeping, Stephen, and, and the absence of even perhaps just a quick follow-up email saying, you know, we, we spoke about this at, at yesterday's meeting. We've, we've all had cases where um, that would help evidentially enormously, just, just a, a quick affirmation of what was, what was discussed. Um, so those are absolutely um, spot on in terms of the areas we, we tend to see and what, what brokers can do to avoid um, falling down in those areas. I think there is also another issue there, Marcus, related, and that's the use of statements of facts. Um, I do think there's a bit of a ticking time bomb here because the brokers are partly completing these statements of facts. They're issued after the it, it, covers have been arranged. They do issue out a, a statement saying, please read the statement of fact very carefully and so on. But of course, the, the clients hardly ever do actually read them. And I know that might end up being a contributory negligence aspect of the claim. But I do feel that by not going through the statement of fact properly with the client, it is creating an environment where there's going to be a lot more uh, broken negligence claims. Yes, on that point about statements of fact, and going to your first point about the relationship between um, broker and client, I think um, Sarah and I would have seen cases where on winning a new account, that first meeting, the broker is really in sales mode, and, and, and yet that is perhaps the first time they would have the opportunity to, to run through some of those um, statements of fact. And, and, and an old chestnut there is the financial history and um, director's prior insolvencies. And on the one hand, one can see why a broker uh, wanting to win an account doesn't want to say to the prospective client, have you ever been involved in a, uh, a defunct company? But uh, I guess, you know, you still have to find your moment to go back and ask the awkward questions. I totally agree, Marcus. And you have to remember that these ultimately are contracts. And it, it's nice to think that every client is an angel and that they never do anything wrong and the broker is the bad guy. But the reality is there's plenty of sharp clients around and they're quite happy to hand the statement of fact to, to the, their assistant and say, talk to the broker about that. And, and the assistant may not know the financial history and so on. So it's not as quite as clear cut uh, always as to who is right and who's wrong in terms of this documentation. And Stephen, look, looking back at your um, long successful career in insurance, I mean, what advice would you give to a young insurance broker just starting out on, on their career? Well, first of all, I would say it, it is a great career. You see and meet loads of interesting people. You see loads of great uh, businesses and so on. So uh, good choice, I would say, to start with. Well done. Uh, I would also say you must get yourself qualified. Um, I didn't actually qualify straight away. I, I did a, several years in in practice at a very junior level. And then I said, okay, this is definitely for me. And then I went ahead and qualified. But what I found was that when I did some of the, particularly the English law papers and the liability papers, it gave me additional confidence to be able to talk to a client about their insurance issues and talking about what is the definition of an employee and things like that. And then that gave the clients confidence that I knew what I was talking about. And you gain more respect in the industry generally if you are qualified. So that's the first step I would do. Also, it's a very wide uh, career in the sense that you can pick up, uh, you can be a specialist marine broker or general broker aviation and so on. So 
perhaps go to something that interests you, something that you like to do, because that will keep you motivated and so on. And uh, it can be financially rewarding in the long term. Initially, it starts off being fairly modest, but when you get to a reasonable level, the rewards are there. So I would definitely encourage them to uh, try and develop their career in a deliberate way rather than just hope things come along. Brilliant. Uh, Stephen, I know I speak for Sarah as well to say that's absolutely, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear your insights and, uh, from the perspective of, a, of, a, of a, now an expert uh, in broken disputes and some, some really useful uh, takeaways in terms of risk management for our broker audience. So thank you again for joining us. It's been uh, been really interesting conversation. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think your your points about um, your looking at your career in a very deliberate way, I think that goes goes for a, a lot of professions. I think a lot of people are going to find that really helpful. So thank you. Thank you.